Advent, of course, gives us a tremendous opportunity to think about waiting. And as we finish up this series of kind of uh, the broad themes and overview of the Old Testament, which I was so excited about when Dick told me what uh, you all were doing and sent me the notes, even from last week's sermon, it was just so fascinating because um, we're getting to now the last part, the temple, and um, there's so much waiting involved. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you came and you are coming again. And so as we sit in between your first advent and your second advent, your first arriving and your second, make us attentive to your voice, responsive to your spirit, so that we could glorify your Father, we pray. Amen. What we're waiting for is often defined on by where we are. If you're in Pakistan today in the church, you're waiting because of a bombing that occurred in one of the churches in the, uh, in the kind of southwest province of Pakistan. And you may be wondering and waiting if you know somebody who is hurt or if a family member will survive or you're waiting for a funeral. If you live here in the United States, you're waiting for peace and joy and hope and um, flourishing. If you're waiting in our schools, um, I don't know here in Westchester County, but in New York City, students are just waiting for school to be done. Um, some of us are waiting for family to arrive, or some of us are waiting to go uh, to visit family. Others of us are waiting um, for deep things. Um, some of us are waiting for a child or waiting for a child to come home. Others of us are waiting for justice. Um, others of us um, are waiting for a light to break. And for the people of Israel, um, in the, this second temple period, they're waiting too because if you remember the story that we've been reiterating over the first few weeks, right, in creation we know that God exists and he loves and he delights and out of his beauty and majesty and hope and love and um, delight in the world creates a place for humanity to dwell. Right? And God is intimately involved in his creation, and he makes a beautiful environment, a garden, and creates a people, Adam and Eve. And he says, look, you're like me, and wherever you go, people will know that I am there, and I exist. So tend this garden, make it beautiful, and make it flourish, and then extend this garden. Extend this cultivated plot of land into the whole world. Bring all of what it means to look like me into it. Bring art and music, literature and family. Bring food and fellowship and fun. Make this place beautiful. I've given you a template in this garden. The world is yours. Now to go do it. Of course, we know that by Genesis 3, that first human couple destroys their relationship with each other. And the impact of that, as God announces, destroys their relationship with the place that they live in and ruptures their relationship with him. And so then the rest of the Old Testament begins to press toward God's redeeming action. And how will he restore his relationship with his people, his people's relationship to one another, and their relationship to this good land they live in? And so all through the early stages of Genesis, you have death and destruction rupture of relationship until you get to Abraham and then God says to Abraham I am your God I am yours Abraham 
you know me and I know you, and so I am going to turn you into the people through which I will restore people's relationships with me, with the world, and with each other. In your family, I'm going to make you a blessing to the world, and I'm going to give you a land, a place to dwell. And Abraham and his family began to experience some of that. They began to anticipate that, right? It's a small family in the beginning, not quite settled in the land they're with, but beginning to know a little bit more this God that they serve. The people of Israel go into captivity in Egypt, then God brings them out to Sinai. Then he reiterates, I am your God and you are my people. This is how you're going to relate to me. This is how you can get to know me. This is how you can honor me. And I'm about to bring you into land. And this time you're going to own it. This time you're going to belong there. And if you will just follow me, love one another, love the alien, the stranger in your midst, then you're going to prosper. And you will be a light to the nations. Of course, we know that soon after the people of Israel arrive in the land, they forget who their God is. They fight among and with one another, sin against one another so grievously and so systemically that even though there are high points in the history of Israel where God says, I'm going to create a kingdom ruled by David and his descendants forever, this will be eternal, their sin, their brokenness, and their rebellion lead them to a place where God says, we need to start over. I need you to understand That even though I said I would dwell here in Zion, even though I said Jerusalem would be the place where I dwell, where I'd make my glory known, I cannot stay with you any longer. I'm leaving to help you understand how horrendously you have behaved, how rebelliously you've acted toward me, how broken our relationship with perhaps only if I step away will you begin to understand the grievousness of what you've done. Not only that, I'm going to send you from this place where I said you would dwell and your people and descendants would dwell forever. You've so damaged the land through your sin against one another, against the land itself, and against the nations around you that the land vomits you forth. I'm going to disperse you to the ends of the earth. I'm going to take my king away from you and let you be ruled by somebody else for a change so that you can actually see what it's like to be ruled by somebody who has no understanding of the law and of my love. And so, as Dick very eloquently um, described uh, last week as he was uh, talking about the exile, that's where the people of God are at this stage. And I hope as you begin to describe that, right, compared to the intimacy that Adam and Eve would have known before the fall that Abraham had begun to experience as he engaged with God on Mount Moriah, as the people did as they saw the power of God at Sinai, and even as they saw him intervene, what deep longing they must have been experiencing by the time the exile had occurred. We're barely a people anymore, they would think. We don't even have a land and our God has walked away from us. Who are we? Where do we belong? Who shall we worship? Right? Those are some of the themes that drive the exile. And then, 70 years after the exile begins for the people of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel having been dispersed some years before that, Second Chronicles closes with suddenly God's promises, even in the midst of exile, being fulfilled. Because he had said, I'm going to cast you out, but if you would just return to me. If you would just repent, if you would trust me, I will bring you back. And so 2 Chronicles closes with God's people scattered in an exile, and then suddenly in 539 B.C. or so when um, Cyrus conquers Babylon, 
which you know about through Daniel 5, right? There's this great banquet. This mysterious handwriting appears on the wall. Daniel's called in from retirement. And he says, tonight, this kingdom will fall and the Medes and the Persians will take over. That Cyrus suddenly announces, I'm going to allow the Israelites to return to their land. I'm going to allow them to rebuild their temple. And then suddenly, right, there's hope. This dispersed people suddenly begin to come back. They suddenly begin to organize worship of God again, and they think we have a place to meet our God. And in this case, they are led by one of the descendants of David. Expectation begins to grow. There's hope again in the air. We aren't a dispersed people. We're suddenly gathered. We aren't lost in an exile. We have a place, and there's one of David's descendants who's actually leading us. And perhaps if the temple is built and God returns, we could be a light to the nations again. So the temple foundations are laid, and sacrifices resume that next year. But um, Ezra describes it this way in Ezra chapter um, 3, beginning in verse 11. After the foundations began and after the um, sacrifices began, all the people gave a great shout of praise because the foundations of the house of the Lord were laid. But many of the older priests and the Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple, the temple that Solomon made that was glorious and beautiful and majestic, wept out loud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away because they looked at what was being laid and they thought, it's glorious that we have the temple back, but man, this isn't the temple that we once had. This isn't going to be as big or as glorious or as beautiful as the temple we once had. And, and that weird and intriguing mix that Ezra describes some people were rejoicing and other people were mourning. Some people were laughing and other people were crying. Some people were filled with hope and other people were heartbroken. Continues that trajectory, right, that Dick described last week in the exile. It's still continuing for them. They've been brought back into the land, but it's still not done. Because they think God is coming back, but only to this. And we're being regathered, but only here in this small place. And we're still at the mercy of what the Persians do and want. Um, and so because of some opposition externally, uh, they don't get much further than building the foundations and a few of the walls. In fact, um, building on the temple stops for nearly 18 years. So imagine if you were that first group of people coming back to rebuild the temple. You've laid the foundation. You've started the sacrifice. And then because of opposition externally and dissension internally, everything stops. Not just for a year or a decade, but almost for two decades. After you came back with such high hopes, everything has crumbled. Have you ever been in a spot like that where you think, I thought this was going to start so well, and it started so well, What are you waiting for? So about 520, um, Haggai begins to write, the prophet Haggai. And Haggai basically says, 
look, you're rebuilding your homes, you're rebuilding your palaces, you're rebuilding parts of our country, why are you not building the Lord's house? You're willing to settle here in face of opposition, why is the opposition to the building of the house of the Lord so debilitating to you? And goaded by Haggai, they begin to rebuild, and as they build, Zechariah the prophet then also begins to write, and he has visions. He has visions of one day, David's line will continue and rebuild this temple. A king is coming who will restore the worship of God to the way it was supposed to be. A king is coming who's going to rule us. A king is coming. And if, when that king comes, God will come to live with his people again. And some of the imagery that you'd be very familiar with of a king returning on his donkey a branch of David being um, grown and birthed, a promise that Jerusalem and the worship of God would bless the nations begins to resonate and roll around in Zechariah's um, language. And people begin to feel like there could be a future here again. And so they rebuild the temple. It takes them three and a half years. But they get it done. And the temple is completed The people of God have been regathered from the exile, though many of them still live outside. And yet, and yet, even as they gather, there's no sign that the glory of God has returned. What they would have expected was to enter the Holy of Holies and to see the the beauty and the light and the majesty of God. Something has not happened. It's still just a building. And they're still going through the motions. Forty years later, um, in about 479, the story of Esther occurs, right? So the peop- most of the people of God have come back, or many of the people of God have come back to Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. And Esther is a fantastic story, but if you're reading it through the perspective of exile, one of the things that you see is this. The people of God are still incredibly vulnerable. All it would have taken, if you're familiar with the story, was Haman to have accomplished what he intended to do. And the Jews would have been wiped out throughout the exile, but also in Jerusalem. Their land would have been taken from them. They're at the mercy still of a foreign power. And so even though they have land and there are a people again and they're worshiping God, all of it could have been snuffed out except for God's intervention through um, this woman and the able counsel of her cousin Mordecai. 20 years later, in about 458-ish, Ezra returns as a scribe to Jerusalem, and he's distraught. Because he looks around, he says, you've been brought back into the land, and we have this temple, and there may even be some um, some of David's descendants around helping lead, but we are not a people who seem to have honored God still. We still seem to be caught in our sin. We still seem to be doing the very things that the law prohibits. How can we let this happen? And he leads a covenant renewal because of the sin. And yet, the people still aren't fully changed. The land is still under the control of others. God doesn't seem to act. Maybe another 13 years later, Nehemiah returns. Walls are rebuilt. The covenant is renewed as they read the scripture. But it's the same sins that beset the people at Nehemiah's time, that beset the people of Ezra's time, that continue to beset the people of God throughout their history in the land. Same political exile, same sinful people, same distant God. And then you get to the book of Malachi. You get to the book of Malachi, and 
what I think you have are the complaints and wrestling with the people of God with this. You promised, God, you'd bring us back. You promised that we'd be a people again, that you would be our God, that we'd be ruled by your king, and none of this has happened yet. How are we to understand this? What are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? Well, God's response seems to take them at least through the second half of Malachi, which is, um, I know, a longish reading, but I wanted you to get a sense of the conversation that the people of God are having with him and the ways that they're wrestling with this waiting that they're in. In part, they're still waiting because they're broken by their sins, aren't they? Um, They thought we would be a people glorious and holy before you, a kingdom of priests to serve you, Um, they were promised at the time in Sinai. And they said and said, or God says to them, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? You ask, by saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, evidently, and he's pleased with them because they can be bad and there seems to be no punishment. They can do horrible things and there seems to be no judgment. And for those who aren't cynical at the time, they're just desperate. Where is the God of justice? Why are people still oppressed? Why are our lives still at risk? Why are the poor and marginalized still not being fed? Why has justice not been done? And I think um, people think God must either not care that people are evil or God is completely absent in the world, right? That's what the line is. Um, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. It feels honestly very on nose and on point given all of the religious and political conflicts we experience today, both in our own country um, and the rest of the world, doesn't it? All who do evil seem to be fine in the sight of the Lord, but he doesn't seem to judge anybody. Every political party would say that. Every religious group would say that. Where is the God of justice? Why doesn't he seem to act, right? I think, in fact, this is such a common, pervasive cry in the world that if we would just pay attention and listen to it, we would hear it all the time. Right? Whether it's the Me Too um, social media um, movement around sexual assault and harassment, Black Lives Matter, or almost every other protest movement underlying it all is this is not the way the world should be. This is not the way where we should experience both each other and our government and the systems and structures in this world. People should be treated with dignity and respect because they're made in God's image. They should be loved and cared for because God has made us to care for one another. They should be empowered to use all of their abilities um, and capacities to accomplish human flourishing for the glory of God. And wherever there's oppression and wherever there's destruction and wherever there's sin against one another, all of the protest movements that you see on social media and read in the newspaper, are people asking without knowing that they're asking often, where is the God of justice? And if we as a church would hear that, we'd actually realize the entirety of creation, the whole political and economic and media systems of the world are crying out, where is the God of justice? They too are engaged in the question, why are we still waiting? And... What are we waiting for? God's response, of course, is this. I am sending a messenger to prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, he says. 
do not worry, do not cease waiting, and do not give up hope, and do not give in to cynicism. I have sent somebody and am sending somebody. A messenger will come and to prepare the way for me, and then I, the Lord myself, will come into this place. And what will I accomplish? He does two things. If you look at the first four verses or five verses of chapter three, the first he says is, I'm going to make for myself a people who are worthy of my name so they can lead the worship that I desire in a way which is acceptable to me. I will reform and refine my people the church of God throughout history until such a time they stand gloriously before me, unashamed and unembarrassed and unembarrassing. Who can stand the day of my coming, he seems to say, right? I'll wash you clean, um, and then the Lord will have uh, men and women who will bring offerings in in righteousness, and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in the former years. For all of us who've often wondered, why is the church so mediocre, so terrible at its witness, both internally and politically? Why are we so ineffective and mixed in our motivations? Why do people see our sin much more than our sinlessness? God says, do not despair. Do not give up hope. I am coming, and I will complete this process that I began. And he also says, not only will I create for myself, um, not only will a God of justice refine God's worshipers, but a God of justice is coming who will condemn the sins that pervade our society and ourselves. Because if you look at verse 5, look at the huge range of sins that are described there, right? So I will come and put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, people who misuse religion and religious powers, um, adulterers and perjurers, people who destroy relationships of family and of society, because that's what those two things do, right? They break the bonds that hold us together because people are now untrustworthy, against who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord. From the most intimate sins that we experience, the most systemic sins, right? To those who are most powerful, to those who are most vulnerable, God says, I am coming and I am going to name those things and fix those things. Do not despair. Keep on waiting. Waiting because we need to become a people, God seems to say, who reflect my character and my values, who do the things I've called you to do to the people who most need that. We're still waiting because... In fact, even as we wait for God's promise, the reality is for some of us it's like, but you still haven't come in the ways that we've hoped. I mean, it's been 2,000 years, Jesus, and that's where the next few verses in verses 6 to 7 seem to go, right? If we're waiting to become a people who are not so broken by sin, both the sin we experience and the sin that we commit against other people, we're waiting for God to come and finish changing that. And I think in verses 6 and 7, you begin to see some of that. I, the Lord, do not change, he reminds them. I'm the one who created the world for beauty and created a people to be glorious and creative and righteous. I have promised to be your God. I do not change. Through all the failures of history, I am still that same God, and I will be that same God. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed because I'm going to have mercy on you like I promised I would. I will not blot you out like I promised you would. 
Even since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. I've not changed, and sadly, you've not changed, is what he seems to be saying. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Right? Think of how that must have resonated for the people of Israel's time waiting after all those years. Return to me, and I will return to you. Repent and change, and I will draw near to you. Offer yourself to be reconciled with me, and I will be reconciled to you. I am the consistent God who forgave you time after time after time. I am the God who's finally brought you back after exile. Turn to me, and I will show you my mercy like I promised. I do not change, and my promises have not changed. Return to me, and I will return to you, and I will fill this place with my glory again. Return to me, and I will return to you, and this land will be known as the land where God walks and God makes himself known. Return to me, and I will return to you, and suddenly you will be a new people. And if you're the people of Israel hearing this from Malachi, you must be thinking, I would like to return to you. We should return to you, and we seem fundamentally incapable of doing it. I cannot love you like you deserve to be loved. I cannot seem to obey you like you deserve to be obeyed. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. Lord, have mercy. What's the solution? What's the hope then for the people of Israel? Return to me and I'll return to you. We would love to and we cannot. We need help to return. We cannot do it on our own. So they're waiting. They're waiting to become a people who don't sin against one another and aren't sinned against. They're waiting for God to return. They, like we, are waiting because, frankly, the land has still not been redeemed. It's not as fruitful as we had thought it would be. This is supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, and it's still filled with ruin. This is supposed to be the land where your king rules, and we're still under the heel of Persia, and we will be under the heel of empire after empire as uh, Israel is mowed over in succession by Alexander and the Seleucids and uh, Rome and generations on. How do we become a land again? I think verses 8 through 12 begins to speak to that hope and aspiration, right? The people say, how are we to come back to you? How are we to return? And God says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. And you, then they ask, how, how are we robbing you? He says, if you would just trust me and give your tithes to me, I would bless your land. Now, I, this is much more than just name it and claim it. Like if you give God 10%, he will give you another 110% above that. I don't think that he's doing that. He's basically saying, if you would just begin to live the way I'd asked you to live. If you would acknowledge, right, what the tithe was, was the first fruits. If you would just commit the whole of your life and everything that you own to me and acknowledge that at the very beginning with the very first things that you do, right? If you would align yourself with me, then I would pour out my blessings on your land. And he says, test me in this. It's not, um, right, it's not some magic savings account. I give God 10% and he gives me so much more. It's If you give God the tithe, then you acknowledge all I have belongs to you, Lord. So I return part of it overtly for your use. 
acutely aware I'm stewarding the rest on your behalf. If you would just organize your land and yourselves like this, oh, my blessings would pour out to you. And what I love is that he says then at verse 12, then the nations would call you blessed. For yours would be a delightful land. Not just because the crops would grow, but because a land ordered by God would be a delightful land that the nations would take, care, would take notice of. It would be a land where, as um, God points out in verses four, 3 and 4, where the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the uh, foreigner in your midst would be taken care of and the nations would marvel. It would be a land where um, the land is cared for and people enjoy a Sabbath, showing that they aren't chained to their work. They aren't worshiping the idols of their own production. It would be a delightful land to be in. It would be a land where everybody recognizes all that they have belongs to God and justice is being done. People are flourished, valued, and dignified, and the nations would stand in awe because that land would suddenly be a light to the nations. God seems to ask them, so what are you waiting for? What do you intend to do about this? I want to suggest that for those of us who find any resonance in what the people at Malachi's time are wrestling with, are you longing to be a new people? Are you longing to be among a new people where there's justice actually for all, sufficiently, sufficiency for everybody who is in need, peace where there's conflict? Are, are you longing to be a people who know God, to whom God has drawn near, and you know him intimately, right? Because it's not just... Return to me and I'll accept your worship. It's return to me and I will return to you. I will be close to you. I will be with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you're longing to be a place where you see God's flourishing, I want to suggest quickly that God's suggestions then occur in this last section then of Malachi beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. Part of what God seems to say to them is reject despair and cynicism. You've spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, and yet you ask, what have we said against you? You've said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going around like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then the, those who had feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written on his presence concerning those who had feared the Lord and honored his name. On that day I will act, says the Lord Almighty. They will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will see again the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do not despair. Don't give in to cynicism. Don't give up, God seems to say. Right? Because the people at Malachi's time were saying, what use is it? We worship, we sacrifice, we try to live rightly, and it seems to make no difference. God says, do not give up. Don't grow cynical. Trust me. And the response of the people then, right, in verse 16, is those who feared the Lord talked with another, and the Lord listened and heard, and a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. For me, at least, that is in part why I gather every Sunday at church. 
and why I gather in small groups and in prayer meetings because I need to be among those group of people who've chosen to remain faithful, to be reminded by them and through them and among them of what God is doing and how they're living so that I have the courage and the fortitude to continue to move ahead myself because I will never make it alone. Despair is too easy. Exhaustion is too real. How shall we wait? I think we don't just reject despair, but we expect and press toward engaging in acts of justice and righteousness because God is coming to judge and to redeem. Look at verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 and 5 again, right? Surely the day is coming, says the Lord. It will burn like a furnace. And then he's very clear, <clears throat> um, beginning in verse 2 and 3, but for those of you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Right? There is justice for those who are oppressed. There is justice and hope because I will not forget you. I am planning to restore you. And I have never watched um, a well-fed calf because I live in a city or in the suburbs. But I have to imagine um, an animal frolicking and thoroughly enjoying, not enjoying just because they're young, because they're well-fed, because every need has been met. And then you will trample on the wicked, and they'll be like ashes under the sole of your feet on the day when I act. Um, and then again in verse 5, um, I'm sending Elijah, and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents, right? Relationships will be restored and re-knit, and I will come and strike the land with total destruction if this doesn't happen, right? Reject despair, expect, and press into acts of justice so that we're faithful. And then he says, live faithfully, with what you already know in verse 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. How do we wait? You reject despair. You embrace and enact justice and righteousness individually and socially, and then you live faithfully with what God has already taught you to do. Because here at Advent, um, we believe Jesus has come and is coming, and so we don't need to despair. At Advent, we believe Jesus has come and is coming, so we've experienced his redemption and we're being transformed, and we await his judgment, which we expect to be merciful for those who claim the name of Jesus and will be a relief to those who've experienced oppression and injustice. Because Jesus has come and is coming, we live faithfully because his transforming presence is at work and his law is good and life-giving. And as countercultural and as odd as it seems to the people around us, choosing to embrace the word of God and his commandments to us will sustain us and will sustain our witness. So the people at Malachi's time are still waiting. They're waiting for Israel, the true Israel, the Israel that's no longer bound by its sin, a true Israel that fully reflects God's commandments, lives out God's values, and proclaims God's goodness. They know they have not been that kind of people, and so they're longing for true Israel to finally be restored. Who will be true Israel, and how will they experience that? They're longing to be part of a true kingdom, one that really will last, that won't let, be under the oppressive boot of foreign powers or their own corrupted ways, but will actually reflect God's righteousness, justice, and power wherever it goes. They want a kingdom that will last forever. How will that kingdom come, and what will that king look like? Because all their other kings have been failures so far. 
and so they wait. They're not just waiting for a true Israel that reflects God's goodness, values, and ideals to be formed, or a new kingdom that will be ruled by an everlasting king who brings righteousness. They're waiting for the true God to return. To not merely dwell off at a distance or be reduced to an idol, but to be actively engaged in an intimate relationship with them. To reveal his glory among them. To be known as fully as he knows those who follow him. And they wait. And that waiting continues for the people of Israel. For 400 plus years they wait. No change seems to occur. No grand Transformation happens. But in that waiting, I think we find um, how we need to wait as well. And as we come, as Advent begins to draw to a close, we begin to taste what that first answer to the longings and hopes of the people at Malachi's time, how that might have been answered. And as that answer becomes apparent to the people of Israel who have been waiting, it'll become more apparent to us, and I hope it gives us hope until Christ comes again. Let me pray for us. Lord, make from us and your people scattered around the world a new people for yourself so that the nations would see how good you are. And then as you came once, Lord, come again. Bring righteousness and justice, holiness and mercy, love and grace into the world so that all would see and know that the Lord is good. Amen.